All right, all right. How y'all doing? Doing good? Good, good. Good to be with you. Uh, my name is Mark. I'm the lead pastor, teacher pastor here at the church. Uh, good to have you here. Uh, good to see you also at the Langley site, the North site. We are going, continue to go through the Gospel of Matthew. So if you've got a Bible, open it up. Matthew chapter 18 is where we are. We have flipped to a new chapter. Amazing thing. And we're zoning in on a couple verses. Uh, verse um, 6, 7, 8, 9, uh, hovering around that. Uh, but in order to understand kind of what we're going to hone in on today, which is kind of a, an interesting concept, maybe a new concept in regard to what you've heard before, um, we got to set context to it. And so I got to go back to a verse or two that um, here at the South site, uh, uh, Pastor Jonathan uh, talked about and at the Langley site, um, uh, Cliff preached about and uh, in North, uh, uh, Michael Chinchilla was preaching um, in, uh, in Chris's place. They preached a particular verse about childlike faith. And I got to give context to that so that we understand how to zone in on the verses that I'm talking about. So if you look at it, uh, chapter 18 of the book of Matthew, in verse 4, it says, Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And there's this concept of, of um, a kind of humility. Where you and I, the only way we can get into the kingdom of God is if we're humble enough. That we got to set aside all the pride, all the nonsense in our lives that makes us go, man, we can earn this. We're good enough. We can save ourselves, right? Which tends to be what we do. I watch Facebook and I watch people think that if you vote a particular way or you have a particular lifestyle or you believe a particular thing, that out of all the problems in the world, you're the problem. And the gospel comes at us and goes, you can't function like that. There's no way you can get into the kingdom if you look at the world and think they're the problem. You have to go inside yourself to recognize that you're the problem and you actually need saving. This is why I love all these old uh, uh, stories, these legends, these myths that people turn into uh, Disney movies, right? Where you look at them and the Snow White and the Cinderella and the Little Mermaid. My kids have been watching Beauty and the Beast. They went and saw it a few weeks ago and then it's been in my car every single day, driving around, and it just gets in your brain, right? It's like, well, there she goes, this girl who's paying those questions, days and distracted, but she well, right? So it's like, gets in my brain, and I can't shake it out, right? And so, but what is, what, what's the beauty of that? This is why I love that stuff. Why well, I love those stories. They can be sexist and weird and old-fashioned, but the point of it is, is all these stories tell one idea, that all these people at some level are trapped and they need somebody outside of themselves to save them, right? And this is what's humbling about it. And, and as a father of three daughters, what I love about Beauty and the Beast is a dude needs to be saved by a woman. All right, that's legit. Check it. Hello, ladies. All right. So the idea is you actually need to be saved by someone outside of yourself. That's the point. And the gospel comes at us and reminds us, you can't save yourself. You need someone to come down into your context, to limit themselves, to go to prison for you, to come into your castle, your context. That's what Philippians 2 is about. That the God of the universe actually came and did this for you. But it, there comes a point where you need to be childlike in order to ever get into the kingdom. If you hold on to your pride, you never get into the kingdom, which is actually a really hard thing because children, he's using children as an example. And children, do not come to a place of humility very easily. I watch my kids. I watch my six-year-old kid. Yesterday, I sat her down. I said, because she chased a cat onto the road, all right? And I literally set my buddy's cat, not mine. I would never own one. They're evil. They're from the pit. But um, 
my, she chased my buddy's cat into the road and I sat her down and I said, Bella, listen, you can't chase cats out onto the... So here's the thing with kids though. They don't sit around when they're young kids and set their pride aside and recognize that they, they're limited. They don't sit around and, you know, I think we're limited in our capacity. We should trust those in authority over us. That's not how kids think. I said, you can't chase a cat out of the road. She goes, yes, I can, daddy. And then she runs away and her and her you know, friend go off and they probably go, ah, dumb daddy. They don't understand. You have to be so humble to recognize you got to come to a place of, of childlike faith where you feel small so that he is great. That's the point. You have to come to a place where you recognize your own frailty, where you go, man, I'm not actually in charge of anything. Uh, I'm thinking about uh, uh, the, the prophet Habakkuk. I was thinking about it as my kid ran away from me yesterday. Habakkuk's this prophet. If you read it, chapter one, he starts arguing with God, telling God he doesn't know what he's doing with the world. He's like, the Chaldeans are in charge. The Syrians are in charge. Everybody's in charge. There's so much evil. There's so much destruction. God, you don't know what you're doing. And God just kind of comes down and rubs Habakkuk's head and goes, you have no idea even what you're talking. You're so limited in your capacity. Don't you understand? You don't even know what's going on on the other side of the globe. You don't even know you're on a globe. You are so small. And you have to come to recognize your frailty, your vulnerability, before you're ever going to trust Jesus, before you ever come to a place where you go, he is big, I am small. I was uh, flying in on Friday. We went on a a little bit of a vacation uh, down to Palm Springs for about a week and a half with our family, hang out with the girls. We're flying in Friday and I'm coming in over like Seattle and I'm seeing all these massive mountains. And I just start saying to my daughter, look at these mountains. Look at how massive they are. Look at how small we are. Look at how big he is. This is why people vacation to places with beaches and mountains because you you feel small. You connect to something. You go, my gosh, look at my limit of capacity. There is something bigger. This is why we, we don't, we tend not to vacation in Winnipeg, right? We don't go, you know, let's get the family together and go to the plains. And look at what? The plains, right? That's not how we, we want to go and remind ourselves, look at the, look at the ocean. Look at the mountains. We got to be very, so this is where we come to a place in our life. The only way into the kingdom is if you go, I'm small. I, I must decrease, he must increase. God looks big, I look small. Jesus did something great for me. Now I trust in that versus trusting myself. <clears throat> That's what verse four is about. Now it sets up verse seven. It says this, all right? Matthew 18, verse seven it says this. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. So the first word that I want you to hone in on, underline, is the word sin. Because sometimes we misunderstand this word, all right? The tempta- I'll come back to temptations in a second. <clears throat> Woe to the world for temptations to sin. It's the Greek word hamartias. And what it means is to miss the target. So it comes from the world of like archery. So you would take a, a bow and arrow and you would shoot it at a target. <clears throat> and sin was the idea that you missed the middle of the target. You just missed it. Like there's a center of the center of a target and you were off it to some capacity and all of us are off the set. We're not perfect. And one of the first things you got to understand is you missed the center of the target and you missed the center of the target every day. I was reminded of this yesterday. I went to a funeral. The book of Ecclesiastes talks about the idea that it's better to go to a funeral than a party because when you go to a funeral, you start to actually think about life. And you start to kind of reflect and, and feel vulnerable and small. And I went to a funeral yesterday and I was reminded how sinful I was. 
The man was an amazing man who passed away. And his family and friends came up and just gave testimony. This was a guy who would literally, every time he went to the store, he would like lead somebody to Jesus. This was the heart that he had. He'd go to the store and be like, hey, you want to come to know Jesus? Here's a track, four spiritual laws. Here, you need to know Jesus. Here's how to accept him. Boom, people would just, all right, let me, I, see. And then I'm sitting there going, when I go to the store, I just want to get mayonnaise. Like I'm feeling small right now. And they kept, they, they said that, that he's never, multiple people got up and said he'd never spoken a harsh word to his family, to his friends, to his loved ones. And I'm like, jeepers, like this is not what people are going to say about me at my funeral. Like my children are gonna, not going to be like, he never spoke a harsh word. Like that's, like maybe in the last 24 hours, he never yelled at any, maybe they'll say that. And, he, and then he was, they were like, he wrote a note to his wife every day for 40 years before he went to work telling how much he loved her. I'm like, come on, this can't be real. I just, I'm the worst. This is why, this is why I'm the worst husband. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, not, I'm the worst father. I was listening to my kids yesterday. They asked me where I was going and I, and I was dressing up. Instead of going to a funeral. And then I heard my three daughters, not a joke, they, started, they walked away and they started talking about who do you want to die first in our family? And there was a vote and it was me, all right? I was like, what's going on, right? This is, listen, when I was a teenager picturing having daughters, this is not what I pictured, all right? Like them voting me dead for, like I just, not a good thing. And literally in the afternoon after my six-year-old ran out onto the road chasing a cat, I sat her down and I said, Bella, listen, you can't chase a cat. She, Daddy, yes, I can. And she kind of starts freaking out. Like, yeah, I can do this, I can do that. And, and I'm holding her arms so that she doesn't get away, all right? And I'm outside my buddy's house. I'm like, listen, Bella, you got to listen to me. You can't run out. She's like, yes, I can, Daddy, yes, I can. She goes, rah, rah. And she starts screaming. I'm like, oh my gosh, are people going to think I'm abusing her? At this moment... A guy pulls his car up in the driveway and looks at me. And I'm holding my daughter as she's screaming, Ah, daddy, ah! I'm like, oh my gosh, and it's the pizza man. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I look terrible. This is awful. And so I let her go. I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm going to look like an abusive father. And he walks up with the pizzas and he goes, Pastor Mark? I'm like, no! How is this possible? Freaking pizza man! What's going on right now? So here, here's... Here's where this was hitting me over and over. Yesterday was a bad day for me, but it was a day where God said, you see this word, hammer T, you see this word sin, that you miss the center of the center of the center of the mark every day. This is what he just exposed to me over and over ago. I am not a perfect father. I'm not a perfect husband. I'm not a perfect pastor. I'm not a perfect friend. I am sinful. And everybody in this room is sinful. And this is why we needed a sinless savior, right? This is why we needed him to come and save us because we are bound to sin. And if you don't think you're sinful, first John tells you you're a liar. If you think you don't have sin in your life, you are a liar. You have sin. You miss the mark. You're not perfect. That's the point. And so we go, my goodness, I'm sinful. So I actually need a savior to come and die for me and, and forgive me of my sin. That's the whole point. Every single one of us is in that place. Now, here's the other thing about being sinful. <clears throat> if you look at verse 10, 
he brings in somebody who we don't necessarily think about when we think about sin. He says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. We'll talk about that. It's like, for I tell you that in heaven their angels see their face of my Father who is in heaven. See, here's what you and I got to understand. The people, you might have sin in your life and people don't know about it. It doesn't mean you're not sinful. See, the issue is not so much your spouse knowing, your friends knowing, your family knowing. The issue is, is you primarily don't sin against people. You sin against the Father. You sin against God. And so when you start thinking about your life and think, well, nobody knows about the sin yet. And so it doesn't have effect. What you got to understand is first and foremost, the sin that we do in our life is against him. And here's the thing. Go uh, flip your Bible to Genesis 39. Genesis 39 is a great example of this because theologically it's really important that we understand this. And I'll explain why in a second. Um, Genesis 39 is the story of Joseph. Massive amount of the Bible is dedicated to the story of Joseph. Uh, It says this. He's in this place. He's he's working for Egypt. He's come up high in the ranks of Egypt now. I don't have time to tell you the whole story, but it says this. Very interesting situation. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. 39 verse 6. Then verse 7. Now after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. So this, her name's Potiphar. She's an extremely attractive woman. <clears throat> She's married to the man in power. She looks at Joseph and says, come and lie with me, all right? Which would have been extremely tempting to Joseph at the time. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in, this, in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He uh, <clears throat> is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you're his wife. Then listen to this. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against? Now, who does he say he would sin against? God. That's fascinating. So, so my, you're my boss's wife. And my issue, my priority if I was to sleep with you is not that I would sin against my boss. Not that I would sin against you. Not that I would even sin against myself. But I would sin against God. Even if no one else is looking, even if no one knows, the issue is that you and I have sinned against a holy, righteous, perfect God. We have missed the mark. And so what we got to start to understand is when you get convicted about something, you got to, God, I, uh, when I grew up, before I was converted to Jesus, I was not a great kid. And so growing up as a teenager, I did all the things that teenagers do, which is, you know, party and hang out or whatever. And I would go to sleep at night and my parents would say, hey, you're in for the night, you're done, you can't go out. And all that meant was I would wait to hear snoring and then I would slide the window open and I would jump out and my buddy Sean would come pick me up and then we'd go over to so-and-so's house and we'd party all night to three o'clock in the morning and then I'd crawl back in the window. Not that any teenagers, you know, do this in this present scenario in any of our sites or anything. So you don't have to talk to them about it. But, um, and then I'd crawl back in the window and I'd fall asleep. <clears throat> because the issue was, is I had, the, the only thing I had to do was wait for my authority to fall asleep. That's it. And so I thought that if I didn't get caught, that there wasn't an issue. The problem is the book of Isaiah says that God does not sleep. He never slumbers. And so the issue is, is not that your authority in life, the people around you, they might not know anything you're doing in life. They might not know sin at all, but the father knows it. 
And that's the thing that should convict you. That's the thing that should ruin you. That's the thing that should go, man, Jesus is great because I know my spouse doesn't know about this thing. I know the person sitting beside me right now doesn't know about this thing. I know my kid doesn't know about it. I know my boss doesn't know about it. But the father knows it. You know, I had a, I had a friend who was uh, cheating on his wife and he hadn't told her. And uh, I was, uh, they were coming to the church and I was preaching on sexual immorality and how people, if they're, caught, if they're in sexual immorality, should literally today go home and confess if they're cheating, if they're, whatever the situation is, they should spend the day today going home and actually sitting down with their spouse and, and, and confessing it. And during that sermon, um, <clears throat> unbeknownst to, to him or me or whatever, he saw the woman that he was cheating with walk into the service. It was the first and only time she ever came to our church. And she walked in and she sat down and she heard this sermon about you should confess your sin and da da da. And, and, and he was sitting there kind of sweating it out, going like, oh my gosh, you know, da da da. And, uh, and that afternoon went home and he confessed everything to his wife. But here's the thing long before that moment, the father knew about this sin. Long before he confessed it to his wife, he, the father knew and was pressing on him, was convicting him, was pushing his heart until finally there became a breaking point. See, that's the goodness of the father. He knows. He doesn't sleep. He knows, right? And so what you got to understand is you're going to come to a gracious God and go, you haven't crushed me yet. You haven't taken me out yet. And so there's grace here. You let me get up today. I have breath in my lungs. I got water. I got bread. That means you love me. It means you're giving me another chance to start over. You've given me an opportunity in Jesus to be a new creation. And that's the thing that's got to be before us as we're thinking about sin. Now, all of that to say, go back to Matthew 18. None of that, of what I just said, is really what this passage is about. <clears throat> Because it's about something radically different that I'm not sure we think about or talk about very often. <clears throat> but it's interesting. It's this. Woe to the world, verse 7, for temptations to sin. So, so first, Jesus, woe to the world. Um, no matter what modernistic ideas of Christianity tell you that God is exclusively love, he has some woe in him. Right? He is against some stuff. Don't be fooled. Jesus doesn't just walk around flattering people in their sin, rubbing their head, going, I'm just glad you give me some attention once in a while. Boy, I'm so happy. I'm in heaven just hoping to get a little bit of attention. Just give me three minutes a day. I'm so happy you fit me in. I'm so glad to be on your team. He's got woe in him. He's against some things. He's actually against some people. See, we exclusively go, God, God so loved the world. God so loved the world. Very true. He loves the world. He's actually, though, at the same time, against some people. He has some woe. And the woe, who's this group of people? Because we probably go, we don't want to be the people. Here's what's fascinating. Something we never talk about. Listen to this. It is necessary, verse 7, that temptations come. Look at this. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. So here's what he's saying. Here's the people. See, we often talk about our own sin. We often talk about the need to deal with our own sin. We have to talk about the fact that, hey, God is against sin. God's against people who are sinning. But what he just said 
is the people who, who are in the eyes of God in trouble, who have woe against them, are not just the people who, who fall, not just the people who bite it, not just the people who actually sin, not just the people who sleep around or are dishonest or steal or lie. It's not just those people. Listen, it's the people who tempt them to do those things. It's the people who, who set the trap so here's the question as you and I begin to think. How are you and I right now culpable, guilty of setting people up to sin? Not that we look at them and go, oh my goodness, look at all those sinners out there. Look at those people. I can't believe they lie. I can't believe they got involved in sexual sin. I can't believe. And we're looking at their actions. What he does is he enlarges the circle of responsibility and he goes, you know who's also in trouble? The people who set the trap, the people who caused them to sin. Now, let's, let, let's unpack this idea because I think you and I don't really think about this very often. We look at the people who sin. We look at the sins that we do. We don't think about what led us there. Who are the people who set the trap? for? Now, let's talk about, I mean, the big one is sex. People talk about sex. That's the one that kind of comes right out of the gate. How do you and I cause people, set the trap to have sexual sin? Practically, in our world, there's a reason that when I go away with my family, I don't take pictures of myself with my shirt off and put them on Facebook. Because my abs will make you stumble. The... What? I don't understand why you're laughing, but okay. So if I take pictures of myself and show my abs on Instagram, it will make you stumble. Now, <laughs> now <laughs> so, now think about this for our own life for a second. Think about how we function, right? How are you participating in people? See, now, and here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to create this, this sexist thing where we look at women and we start doing this religious thing with women and we're like, well, here, you can wear this, but you can't wear this. You can wear, you know, this nice denim dress that goes from your neck to, your, to the floor and walk around like you live in Abbotsford. Then that's perfect. You should wear that, but you're not allowed to wear Lululemon pants. And your shorts should be this, and your top should be this. Then we get into, this is ridiculous. This is, we get in this crazy world where we start religiously coming down on people, and that's not the New Testament. The New Testament, read Romans 14. It goes, yeah, a guy might stumble with drinking, or yeah, a guy might stumble with food. But here's what we need to do. The kingdom of God isn't about drink or food. It's about freedom in the spirit. And so here's what we need to do. I'm not, as your pastor, going to lay down a bunch of rules for how you men should not use your body to sexually allure other women and how you women should not use your body to make sure that guys aren't stumbling and lusting. Here's what I'd rather do. Instead of setting out a bunch of religious rules for you, I want you to ask yourself, what is the Holy Spirit telling me to do? Amen. Right? Ask him. I'm not, I'm not the Holy Spirit. I just told you I'm a disaster. Ask the Holy Spirit, what do you want me to wear? How do you want me to function? What do you want me to do to not cause people to stumble and sin? As men and women, ask yourself that question. And here's why we don't just allow that. Here's why we get into a religious pattern where I'm going to lay out a list for you of the movies you can't watch, of the things you can't do, of the, of the, of the things you can wear and the things you can't wear. Here's why we do that. Because we don't trust the Spirit to speak to people and we don't trust people to listen to them. That's why. When I was at this funeral yesterday, well, the, the son told a story 
It was fascinating. He'd been in a, uh, an accident uh, and he was in the hospital and the doctors were telling him that he was never going to walk again. He would never walk again. And he said, I didn't care at that moment what the doctors said to me. I didn't care what, what, what friends were telling me. All I wanted to know was what my dad said. All right, this man who had passed away. I wanted to know what he had to say because he was this man of an intercessory prayer and he would just hear from God. And so his dad got on the phone. And he said, listen, I don't know what they're telling you, but I had a dream and you're going to walk again. I saw it in a dream. And then he said this, son, I want you to open your Bible and I want you to point to a verse. And that's the verse that God has for you right now. And the guy's like, what, this is, and the guy's a pastor. He's like, well, this is like the worst hermeneutics ever, all right? We shouldn't do this. And so he's like, okay, bring me my Bible. And so the guy, the, they brought him his Bible and he opened up his Bible and goes, bam, and it was Psalm 147. You know what the verse said? Here's a guy laid out in the hospital, can't walk. And his father said, just open up your Bible. God told me, put your finger down. Here's what the verse said, Psalm 147. His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of a man. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. The only verse in the whole Bible that talks about a man's legs. Now, here's the thing. His dad trusted God to, I wouldn't have done that. I can't trust like that. I'd be like, son, open up your Bible to any chapter. Take your finger. <coughs> Psalm 147. <coughs> Psalm 147. Because I don't trust God enough to do the finger thing. But this guy did. Do you trust God to speak to people? You are not the Holy Spirit. One of the worst things you can do is try to be the Holy Spirit for your spouse. Right? Women tend to, hey, I, I want to make my marriage better. And men tend to avoid it because they know if they go to a retreat or they go to counselor, stuff's just going to get stirred up. And the key priority for a man, remember in the marriage series, is what? Peace. That's all he wants to do. Counselor doesn't sound like peace. Counselor's going to dig up all this old junk. Then we got to talk about it. So what do we do? We, you know, we bring home the marriage books and we stack them up on his bedside table. Hey, look, I got some new books. How to be a true man. How to be a better communicator. And you know what he's going to do with those books? He's going to look at them. And he's just going to keep his day. He just doesn't want to go near. It's like over there. They're over there, man. Because you know what he, you know what he hears you saying? You took on the role of the Holy Spirit. And you're going to tell him now what to do. You're going to speak to him and you're going, to, you're going to tell him. See, this is what we do and men do it too. We play this role of the Holy Spirit in our spouses' lives, in our friends' lives. What I'm saying is ask the question, are you culpable in the sexual sin of other people? Do people sin because of you? Jesus just expanded the responsibility. And he goes, guess who's actually responsible for people's sin? Not just the people who do it, the people who set them up. Now, sexuality is an easy one. We always go at that one because, you know, 
that's what conservative Christians love to hone in on, right? Sex is the altar. You know, people, I can't believe Rihanna. She's out there shaking, making people sin. Okay, fine. Let's go into something that the, 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 the suburbs rarely talk about. Other stuff that Jesus preached about that you and I don't tend to talk about very much. How about greed and materialism? Eee. Let's go back to the sex one. How do you, in your life, make people sin and become more greedy and more materialistic because the way that you talk? What do you talk about when you're out with your friends and you're living in the burbs? What do you talk about? How do you make your friends crave more square footage, crave a nicer car, crave more money, crave a better marriage? How do you do it? You just, what you talk about what you prioritize, what you post pictures about on social media, those things that you elevate every time you do it, every time, think about the motive behind why you're posting that picture about your perfect family and your perfect vacation and your perfect new car and your perfect new house. You cause one of these little ones to be greedy and materialistic and want your stuff and covet your life, you're responsible. This is what he just said. See, this is what you and I don't think about. How, how am I going to be culpable in the sin of other people? In the way that I talk, in the way that I prioritize. Because the minute I begin to say, these are the things that are important in life. These are the, these are the things I take value in. These are the things that make me joyous. And I post about it. These are the things that bring me satisfaction. And people look in at it and they start to covet it and say, well, I need those things. This person isn't satisfied in Jesus. I need more money. I need more shiny stuff. I need a better life. In those moments, Jesus goes, you are responsible for that little one and how they fell. I uh, was sitting with my buddy one day and I said, There's, let me tell you about the most brilliant television show that's ever been created. And I want to sit down and start watching with you. And he's like, what is this show? It's crazy. I'm like, dude, this is the greatest show ever invented. So we sat down. He's like, okay. And we watched the pilot. And in the pilot, but halfway through, boom, there was a naked girl. I had totally forgot that there was any nudity in this show. Like deleted it from my brain. Because that's how godly I am. And this guy is sitting there with me. And I'm like, oh, snap. He looks over at me like, ah, sorry. Right? Now he's got that in his brain. In that moment, God's looking at me going, listen, here's who's responsible for this guy's sin. Not just the makers of this TV show. Not just him. It's you, bro. You led him into this trap. You didn't know it. You didn't wake up twisting your mustache like, oh my goodness, I'm going to you know, mess my buddy up today. But that's what we think. See, that's a mistake we make. If we didn't mean to do it, then we must not be responsible. Jesus just blew all that up. He goes, it could be, this is what's insidious about it. You don't even know that you're making your friend more greedy. You don't even know you're making him jealous. What about jealousy? When a bunch of guys are sitting around and they know one guy in his sex life with his wife's no good, and another guy's sex life with his wife is great, what's the responsibility of the guy who's great? Shut his mouth. But what does he do? Because this is what men like to do. They like to do the peacock game. Hey, look at my life. Look at my life. Look at my life. And I'm watching a guy just go, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And you're causing coveting in this person's life. You're causing them to be jealous. 
How often do you work in how perfect your kids are when you're out with the ladies? How your education is better than that. How much you make, how much success you have. All of these things in our life are ways that we're actually creating temptation in people's lives and we're becoming responsible for them. I look at people on social media, I'm like, my gosh, you're, it's like you, I know you have a job, but it's like you live on the beach. Every day you're on the beach. How is this possible? You've been home. I just saw you today. You're not in Hawaii. And they're like, yeah, but it was like five months ago and I just missed it. So I wanted to post another one. I'm like, ah, you're killing people. You're making people want your life every day. Like, I know I missed it. I wanted to, you know, throw it back there. And I'm like, my gosh, talk about temptation. I'm being tempted to kill you right now. (laughs) This is what we do. It's insidious. It's not necessarily conscious. It's not something we know about. Now, here's the implication of it. Here's how serious it is. What does it do to people? Look at verse 8. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. If there's something in your life that causes you to sin or causes other people to sin, these little ones, these people who've trusted in Jesus, get it out of your life. Cut it out. Jesus is obviously speaking hyperbolically. It was a way that Jews taught back then. He's not literally meaning pluck out your eyes or we'll all be blind or cut off your hands if you steal or whatever. We'd all be walking around with no limbs and no eyes and pretty well be useless for the mission of Christ. <laughs> but... The point is, is you have to deal seriously with your sin. <clears throat> you have to be like Joseph. When Potiphar walks up, she ends up taking his, all his clothes and he runs out naked into the street. That needs to be your posture when you're tempted towards sin. You don't mess around with it. You don't play with it. You cut it out of your life. You leave your clothes in the hands of the woman or man who's pursuing you and you run out to the street naked. <clears throat> That's your call. Every time. I've told you this. There's certain apps on my phone that are they're too tempting to have on my phone. And so I just delete them. And then whenever I want to post something, I download it again, post something, then delete it. Why? Because look what he said, man. If your hand causes you, your foot causes you, your eye causes you, cut it off. Don't play around with it. You're hanging out with people who are constantly talking about money. And they're making you materialistic. They're driving you toward the love of money, which Paul talks about as evil. Jesus talked more about money than sexual sin, far more about greed and materialism than sexual sin. If you're hanging around those people, here's what you need to do. I got to cut you off, bro. You're killing me. Or talk to them and say, can we stop this together? Because here's where it goes. Listen to the implication. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. You want to know the implication of what he's talking about? Look at If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. You and I go, my gosh. Why is he talking like this? Because he's saying this is where a shriveled soul that wants to tempt people to covet their life and make them jealous, this is where they end up. And every single one of us at every moment 
is going to one of these two places. We're entering life or we're moving our soul toward hell. This is what he's talking about. C.S. Lewis, in, uh, in his most famous sermon, The Weight of Glory, he puts it this way. Listen to this. He says, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship <clears throat> or else a horror and a corruption <clears throat> such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Every moment, we are helping people to one of these two destinations. And what Jesus just said is that we become responsible for the sins of the people around us. It, see, this is where this pushes against us as modern Canadians. Here's our philosophy. The only person I'm responsible for is who? Me. This is what we say to each other, even in the church. The only person you're responsible for is you, man. You just, you, it, as long as you and the Lord are good, you can't, don't worry, it's just you and you're responsible for you and I'm responsible for me and that's all we can do. Jesus just blew all that up and he goes, no, you're actually, you are your brother's keeper. You're actually responsible for this. Now, we go, hey, we don't like this. I don't like this teaching. This hell and fire and consequences and be, having to be responsible for other people's sins. I don't, I don't like this. Can we? Here's the problem. Text like this, it's a warning text. It's Jesus warning every single one of us here about something. And with warnings, Jesus isn't really asking our opinion. Like when we were away, <clears throat> a few, um, I think it was uh, Tuesday, Wednesday night, my daughter, my eight-year-old daughter, in the backyard of our friend's house, right by the pool, fell into a cactus. Not a good thing for an eight-year-old to do. A full-on cactus. Now, you may be asking yourself, why is there a cactus beside the pool? I don't know. There was a full-on cactus. My eight-year-old falls into the cactus. All the spikes of the cactus ran from her fingertips all the way up her arm. Boom! Hundreds of them. She starts to cry out. She runs in the house. And we're letting, oh my goodness, there's spikes everywhere. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? My wife says, look up what we're supposed to do. I said, okay. So I Google, what are you supposed to do with a cactus in eight-year-old arm? Google machine says... Put glue all over her arm, and it's going to dry, and then you rip it out. So I'm like, okay. 
So I walk in, I'm like, okay, here's the deal. We're gonna put glue all over her arm and it's gonna dry and we're gonna rip it out. My wife goes, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Go back and look up something else. I'm like, we're not doing that, fine. An hour later, she's like, I think we should bring her to the hospital. So she drives to the hospital, sits five hours in the hospital, all right? Sits five hours in the hospital. Yesterday, we're telling the story. How did, what did they do? This, this woman says, well, what did they do? She said, we went to the hospital, waited five hours, and finally the doctors came out. And they glued her whole arm, <laughs> waited for it to dry, ripped it off. They were brilliant. I'm like, what? I <laughs> mean, they were, that, they were brilliant. Here's the thing about a cactus. When you go buy a cactus, imagine you were to say, you know, I'm going to get this cactus, and the guy selling you a cactus goes, you know, if someone falls in this cactus, it's really going to hurt. Here's a warning to you. It's going to hurt a lot. And you went, I'm offended. I do not like this warning. Cactus going to hurt me. He goes, I'm just telling you reality. I'm not asking your opinion. When the God of the universe tells you you're responsible for people's sin and there's hell to pay, you don't get to go, you don't like it. It's a warning to you. He's gracious enough to pull the veil back and go, hey, this is just what's going to happen. And so we begin to feel the burden and the weight of it, and we shouldn't, because where's the gospel of Matthew moving? From chapter 18, and we start to feel it and feel it and feel it. He's about to go to the cross. He's about to pay for all the times that you have led your family and friends into sexual sin and greed and materialism and jealousy and coveting. He took it all on the cross every time you've done it, every time you will do it until the day that you die. He is the only solution. You cannot make yourself better in this area. You can only depend on what he did for you and the power of the spirit that comes through it. That's where the weight starts to lift and we go, okay, go back to the beginning. I'm a child. I do not have it in myself to make this happen. I am weak. I am vulnerable. But Jesus, by your grace, forgive me. Father, I do pray that very thing. I pray that today is a day where we reflect on something maybe we've never thought about. How are we culpable and responsible? As Jesus draws out, he makes the, the circle of responsibility bigger than just the people who are doing sin and just the people who create, just people who lead us into it. And I pray that as we sit here, there are ways that we are guilty of this, that we would hone, our minds, our hearts would hone in on those ways right now and we would go, Jesus, forgive us of those times, those moments I have done and will do. Take them to the cross. Help me become somebody who lives in the spirit who does not create scenarios where these little ones, these believers in Jesus sin and fall. Let us not be culpable in the sins of others. Thank you for taking every time that we've done this, every time we've been guilty of it to the cross and paying for it for us. Let us walk in newness of life and not continue let us feel the weight of that warning of this text. In Jesus' great name we pray, amen. All right, guys, thanks so much for being with us today. We'll uh, see you next week.